Yes, I vote because I feel like as an African-American female, like I want my voice to be heard. Um, Conservative values. So I vote very conservative. So I try to vote for candidates that have very conservative viewpoints. Oh, I don't vote anymore now. Um, just because I don't. Um. I vote because it is our right to vote, and I take it seriously. This is San Diego Decides, a podcast by Voice of San Diego. I'm Sarah Libby, and I'm here with my pal, Rai Rivard. Hey, Sarah Libby. Hey. All right. Back at the podcast. Rai, what's happening? We're almost there. We're almost there. So this election has had a lot of weird moments and some funny moments and some intense moments and we're going to talk about something that I'm a little surprised actually hasn't been a bigger issue in this election. There's just so many issues on the ballot I guess that maybe it's gotten a little lost in the shuffle or it's been you know an issue for so long that maybe kind of more sexy new issues have have come to the forefront, um, and that is the death penalty. So there are two measures on the state ballot that address the death penalty. And what's a little interesting about it is that kind of both sides of the debate seem to agree on one thing, and that's that the system isn't really working the way it is now. So it's a really costly system. It costs a lot of money to house prisoners on death row um, and also to provide them with lawyers, uh, which we'll talk about in a bit. Um, so the first uh, death penalty measure on your ballot is Prop 62, and that's the one that repeals the death penalty. So no one would be sentenced to death, and it would resentence prisoners who are already sentenced to death to life in prison without the possibility of parole. So that's Prop 62. And the other one, Prop 66, does almost the opposite. Yeah. So it goes in the totally other direction and would actually try and speed up executions. It would it would cut the, the time that people have to spend on appeals, um, and it would broaden the pool of lawyers who can hear uh, those cases and handle those cases. So I think we'll delve a little more into the policy side of this um, later in the show with our friend Kelly Davis, who's been reporting on these. Um, But first, we want to talk um, with our friends Mike and Penny Moreau, who are Voice of San Diego readers and have come to lots of our events and have told us a little bit about their story. Um, And we just thought right away it would make a great um, podcast. And we're really interested in hearing their unique experience and take on, on this big issue that is kind of hard to grapple with. So... Mike and Penny, thank you so much for being here. Well, thank Welcome. you very much. Thank you, too. So could you just tell us a little about Tim and his case and how you came to be involved in this grim issue and be involved in advocacy for victims? Yes. Our son, when he was 21 years old, uh, was attending college in Portland, Oregon, and he uh, mysteriously disappeared. And... It took us eight years to find out that our son was murdered, and it it took another two years to go through the justice system to find some degree of justice. Um, So that's how we first became exposed to the justice system, and um, and since then we have been working with other crime victims, escorting other parents of murdered children through the court system. 
So we were very familiar with the process. Uh, what happened uh, some 20, 26. 26 years ago, Tim disappeared, and it, we, we set out on a, an odyssey that uh, took us to Portland uh, 17 times to wow. try to find out And what you were happened. living far away at the time, right? That's right. We were living 2,000 miles away in New Orleans, Louisiana. And um, at first, uh, the, the police were just uh, taking it as a missing person. But Tim was working in a concert hall mm-hmm. uh, while uh, working his way through college. And he uh, discovered some illegal activity at work. And uh, he threatened to report it to the police. Well, what happened... Uh, the illegal activity became known publicly, and what the employer did was uh, set Tim up. Uh, he uh, he and another employee murdered our son by strangling him and then took him uh, across the state line into the state of Washington state, and they uh, dug a grave two days before, and then uh, on on a Tuesday night, January 23rd, uh, 1990, 1990 um, that's when they, they strangled him, put his body in garbage bags, took him out to the grave that they had dug two days earlier and buried him there. And then when they got back to Portland, uh, the, um, the, the police were investigating the illegal activity and the owner's story was that they had caught Tim doing the illegal activity and um, that when they confronted Tim, they said he fled and and escaped. Uh, The employer and the uh, employee, the other employee, the accomplice, uh, took Tim's car and planted it at the airport parking lot. So at first the police believed uh, their story and so they focused in on Tim as the wanted criminal. Uh, and the, what basically the employer did was they killed Tim and to cover up their own illegal activity. And uh, it, that's what took us eight years to convince people that it wasn't uh, it, just a missing person or Tim was wanted uh, f- for the illegal activity. Um, fortunately, we got a... An investigative reporter interested in the case, and he wrote a series of articles uh, about uh, this concert hall, and began to d- disclose other questionable activities taking place in this concert hall, and um, that the negative publicity that generated by this uh, investigative reporter uh, resulted and the employer suing the newspaper and suing the reporter for defamation of character, blaming him for losing his business because when the negative publicity came out, the uh, entertainment industry boycotted his Mm -hmm. concert hall. So he lost it, declared bankruptcy. Well, um, what happened then was uh, the newspaper attorneys deposed the owner and uh, in preparation for the trial, and it resulted in 800 pages of sworn deposition. 
when we heard what they were doing, we went and met with the paper's attorneys and told them about our interest in Tim and what happened to Tim. And we gave them questions to please ask him under oath uh, related to Tim. Uh, they did do that. And uh, what uh, the answers to the, um, the questions that we were most interested in really didn't help us that much. But what did help us, the attorneys let us see the 800 pages of sworn deposition. And throughout the deposition, he needed to swear how much money he was making in order to demonstrate just how much he had lost. So we had a record of how much he had been earning for the years past. And we suspected that he perhaps was not declaring all of that as income. So we took a copy of these 800 pages and we had highlighted all the references to how much money he was making. And we paid a visit to the IRS in Portland. And um, we told them our story and they said, we'll take the deposition, we'll read it tonight and if we're interested, we'll make a copy and you can come and pick up your copy in the next day. So we went back the next day and they were quite interested. That led to an indictment of the owner uh, and he was facing a trial regarding income tax fraud and income tax evasion. He then disappears um, and we, uh, they, we thought we had lost him. But one day we were channel surfing and on the entertainment channel, and up came an announcement saying there's an upcoming documentary on the Sting concert in Vietnam. Now, the, the rumors on the street was that he had fled to Vietnam. Wow. Uh, on one of our trips to Portland, we, did, we found that out. So we made a point of watching that and recording that. Mm -hmm. And sure enough, he was the promoter for that concert. And there he was, he was interviewed uh, for the documentary. And so we made a copy of that tape and we paid a visit to the uh, IRS again and also to the Department of Justice uh, because the IRS is part of the Department of Justice. And um, we gave them a copy of that. So now they knew where he was. And they told us that, well, we don't have an extradition treaty with Vietnam, so we can't get him back. But then... For a year, everything went silent. No one contacted us or anything, but a year later, we got a call, and they said, we've got him. And what they did it was that they the Department of Justice revoked his passport, made him illegal in Vietnam, and they persuaded the Vietnamese officials to deport him to Thailand, where we did have an extradition treaty. When he stepped off the plane, two U.S. Marshals were there to get him, put him in handcuffs, and bring him back. And he uh, then was faced with the charges with the IRS. He pled guilty to those. And he to was, tax To related tax evasion, right. Yeah. And so we still didn't know what happened to Tim. Uh, but and this we, is years in the making. Right. Yes. Yeah. Wow. wow. It was several years after uh, Tim disappeared. And uh, then... Let's see, um, I'm blocking one Well, now. then he went into the federal pen. Yeah. He had a charge uh, that he would serve a sentence of a year. And when he was in the federal pen, people who knew bits and pieces of what had happened to Tim came forward. They felt safe to, as right, long as he was right. in prison. 
Right. And and there there were more people involved and because the police detectives knew this they were looking and watching for anything that might happen mm-hmm. while he was in the federal pen. Yeah, and let, let me mention that yeah. while he was in the uh, federal pen, uh, the accomplice would call him and they would talk over the phone. And they, all the telephone conversations were taped and transcribed. And uh, several years later, or not several, a few years later, we got a copy of that transcript. And we saw the conversation between the two of them. They were deathly afraid that they, if, if Tim, if what happened to Tim ever came out, they would be faced with the death penalty. Mm-hmm. And so we knew the death penalty uh, was something that they were definitely worried about to go into trial over that. So um, that's why our, our first time we got interested in the death penalty situation. Uh, to make a very long story short, um, they, uh, the, the police wiretapped their accomplice's phone, who, and the, the uh, former girlfriend of the accomplice called him, pretending that, that she might be interested in getting back together with him, and she agreed to have her phone tapped because she was facing some minor drug problem so she was negotiating with the police that she would help try to find out what uh, George the accomplice knew about Tim so when she called George George suspected that his phone might be tapped so he told the girlfriend let me hang up I'll go to a public phone and call you from there he did that but he didn't know that didn't the know girlfriend her phone was, was being tapped recorded, so right. that's where it really broke open the case he admitted to his role in killing Tim, and then the police immediately re- arrested him, put the screws to him, and he turned state's evidence and told the whole story about and This was eight and a half years later. So yeah. it took quite a long time. So tell us how you knew already in your head that this was something that they feared. Tell us how the death penalty became a factor or how it was used in the case. Okay, yes, uh, he was, uh, they were both charged, uh, and George, the accomplice, uh, agreed to eight years or ten years? Ten years, ten years, but he served eight because he got credits for the time he already was in jail before he was sentenced. Yeah, and uh, then um, it took two years before it went to trial, but what happened uh, is that, of course, uh, the owner was assigned an attorney, two attorneys, in fact, and both experienced with dealing with the de- death penalty. And it was clearly a death penalty case because not only was a murder involved, but the kidnapping and also c- committing a murder in order to cover up their own crime. And so uh, the DA said he would go after the death penalty. Well, the defense attorneys... And the boss said they'd like to cut a deal and, and plea bargain. And the plea bargain was that if they took the death penalty off the table, then he would uh, admit what happened. He, and he not only would admit what happened, but he would help us find Tim's body. And he also agreed to serve 12 years in prison. 
and he would be uh, subject to lifetime parole supervision. So uh, the DA met with us, and we were so desperate to find out what happened. Right, it had the been details. so long. Yeah, yeah. right. And uh, we also, you know, uh, really still interested in finding Tim's body and bringing him home. Uh, so we agreed to that to plea bargain, even though we didn't uh, we didn't have an official role to play. But the, by then, then the DA knew us well, and he wanted our input, and so. Uh, that's when we got interested in how, what impact the, death, the hanging over someone's head, the threat of a death penalty, how it can help victims find out what happens. Right. Uh, I mean, it's, it's leverage. And this is, right. I think, one of the most compelling arguments, in, in my opinion. There are you know, some really high-minded philosophical arguments that people who don't have personal experience with these types of things, I think probably think about, you know, should we be vengeance based and should the government be killing people? But this is actually a very practical argument. It's not this, this theoretical um, thing is whether, you know, this is a tool that prosecutors should have. Um, And it sounds like you believe it, it is. We, We thoroughly believe that very strongly. Uh, because as the, the DA pointed out to us, if it went to trial, uh, they uh, all you need a unanimous verdict in a, um, the superior courts, and all it would take would be one jury juror to have reasonable doubt that a murder even occurred because the body was never found. Right. And so they say, without a body, you can't prove. Right, so you're in a little bit of a catch-22. He has to tell you where the body is, and without it... Yeah, right, So, right. so uh, that's where uh, we agreed. And so, and we also see it as a uh, death, the threat of a death penalty as a way of avoiding having to go to trial as parents of a murdered child, have to relive that again. And it also saves a lot of money because they don't have to go to trial. Mm-hmm. They, they just present to the judge and the jury the plea deal and and that's it uh, so i i want to share with you too a little bit about our background mm-hmm. we're licensed clinical social workers we we worked in the helping field and you know i do believe that kids make mistakes and they end up in prison for years and that's not right you know it really isn't right and i'm glad we're having some criminal justice reform here in san diego Um, but there are people who are sociopaths and they will not change their behavior and that's the way we feel about the people who killed Tim. Right, and we're, we're dead set against violence. Um, f- philosophically, we think it is wrong to kill somebody else. Um, and so that's why we're, we, these two propositions has really created for us a moral dilemma. Right. Uh, and we've been struggling with this. Uh, we didn't know how we were going to vote until just a few days ago. Right. When uh, when I talked to you last at PolitiFest, you were still grappling with it, and mm-hmm. it sounds like you've made a decision. Yes, Maybe. right. Maybe. Have yeah. you both landed on the same decision, or explain to us what your thinking is? Okay. Uh, we have made a decision. 
Um, and we've already voted. We sent it in the mail just two days ago, so we can't change our mind now. <laughs> and not, we won't. It, um, our reflection on the two propositions is that, you know, if both of them pass, whichever receives the most votes will proceed. Right. Um, so 62, no question about it, they would abolish the death penalty. Um, and it's pretty clear um, 66 now, uh, it's not so much an effort to try to speed up the executions as much as to reform the dysfunctional system that's in place right now. You made the observation that, uh, or the comment that it will speed up the executions to f f within five years. That's the target. But you've you got to balance that out. It can also lead to an early exoneration of the innocent. Right now, it takes up to 10 years to appoint defense attorneys for people who are facing the death penalty. So they will get out earlier, and with additional, it, the, the proposition calls for more attorneys, more training for the attorneys that will be defending the death penalty appeals, um, and, and thereby speed up the whole process. People won't linger in jail at the taxpayer's expense. Uh, it has, I think it's going to bring down the cost if they do a true reform of the system. Now, it's, it's, it's still not perfect, but it's a step in the right direction. We hope eventually it may very well lead to the abolition of the death penalty if you could guarantee that life in prison without the possibility of parole really means that. And that is just not true. Our personal experience, not because of Tim's case, but because of other cases where we uh, escorted parents and murdered children through the court system here, and we hear of people who have, have life sentences are not in jail for life. Right. I'd it's point just out— a it's just a legal term, life. Right. Um, and my overall concern is that the, the scales of justice are out of balance now, one, one side the accused and one side the victim. And the, the recent efforts to, uh, like through Prop 47 or the realignment, the, the, right. the trend is to uh, empty the prisons. Uh, right. And with this total disregard of the impact that has on the victims, if— if 66 does pass, it's an opportunity for us to also see that the scales of justice become balanced again to make sure that victims are no longer ignored in this process. Now, right. So you're in favor of Prop 66. Our, right. Our, our moral dilemma is settled that we're going to vote against 62 mm -hmm. and vote for 66 because it's an opportunity to reform this present dysfunctional system. If both of them fail, there's going to be no change, and right. the crazy system will come. Back to the drawing board. And no one wants that to happen. So and to increase the chances of 66 passing, we're going to vote no on 62 and yes on 66 and work hard to help reform the process that no one likes right now. So that's where we stand. Well, I so much appreciated hearing your 
position and I'm, I was eager to see where you guys landed and hear about how you came to that decision. And, um, I'm glad that you've made a decision that you feel good about and you, you mailed it off. So it's done. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Encourage everybody to do likewise. Well, thank you guys so much for being here. We really appreciate it. And thank you too. You know, one of the fears that parents of murdered children have is that their child will be forgotten And even though this is related to the propositions, it allows us to tell our story again. And we really do appreciate that. Well, thank you for telling it. We really appreciate it, too. Now we've got our friend Kelly Davis is here with us to talk about some of the policy questions of both of these measures. Kelly's a criminal justice reporter and has been looking into the death penalty for the last few months. Kelly, what's up? Thank you for being here. Oh, thanks for inviting me. So, like I said, um, one of the big things that everybody seems to agree on is that the system is really, really costly. Um, And actually, last night, Rye and I were at a a presentation on the state ballot measures. Um, We're just like a total traveling roadshow, by the way, and it's going awesome. Thank you for having us, everybody. Um, But somebody asked us how much the death penalty costs, which is a really basic question that you might want to know as you discuss these these issues and i said frankly i have no idea and they're talking about they're talking about two things they're talking about the long appeals process which involves a lot of lawyers and lawyer fees and then they're talking about housing people on death row being more expensive than housing people just in a regular old life sentence situation exactly and i think uh people might forget a piece of that is that the state in a lot of cases appoints attorneys um for these people and that costs a lot of money, those attorney's fees as these cases drag out. So I actually looked this up since I was very embarrassed to not know a question that someone asked me in a public forum. Um, And the best study um, that I could find is a few years old. It's from 2011. Um, But a Ninth Circuit court judge and a loyal law school professor were able to get actually some numbers from the Department of Corrections that no one had ever kind of been able to get their hands on before. And it essentially found that In California, since the death penalty has been on the table since 1978, the state has spent $4 billion on capital punishment. Um, Or if you divide it up between the 13 executions that have actually been carried out, it's more than $300 million per execution. So that's pretty astounding. And so, Kelly, you were saying that you've maybe seen some numbers about what it would take to bring the system into, you know, a better place or what's that about? Yeah. Um, in 2008, the the California Commission on the Fair Administration of Justice, they they issued a report on basically how to fix the death penalty in California. The, the, the same problems that we have now with, you know, folks being on death row for 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 two, three decades, um, you know, before they're executed or more people dying of old age or disease than than actually being executed. Um, those issues were were present in 2008. And so this uh, this big panel of, you know, law enforcement folks, um, you know, death penalty advocates, death penalty foes uh, came together, put together a report on um, what do we do? You know, they came up with the the conclusion uh, they called the death penalty dysfunctional and broken. And they said we either need to end it or we need to invest about another hundred million dollars to fix it, to to have the proper attorney attorneys to to speed up the appeals process. 
Um, it's a very fascinating read. So just look up Death Penalty California Commission on the Fair Administration of Justice. Um, pretty much nothing that they recommended is in Prop 66, and nothing that they recommended has ever been implemented. Well, look at that. So. <laughs> we sure do love a task force, though, in San Diego and in California. It gives you reports a, to point to. Absolutely. Yeah. And then you can always form another task force if if that doesn't go well. So. And so just like a neutral thing about the death penalty is more than 900 people have been sentenced um, to be executed, but only, and only is maybe not the great word to use here because these are people, but, but only 15 or so have, have been killed and a hundred have died just while waiting for something to happen. So it's just, that's what they talk about when they talk about dysfunction. We have a system for punishment that doesn't really punish people with death. Right. Or, you know, they'll bring up, um, you know, as, as, um, Forensic science evolves, um, you know, cases that have been overturned or sent back for a new trial, lots of issues with uh, ineffective assistance of counsel, lots of issues with uh, some counties will send far more people to, to death row than other counties, which brings up, um, you know, race, poverty level, you know, so, so um, all these, all these big questions about um, the, the, fairness of the system overall. That's that's one of the big issues that I struggle with personally. I know a lot of people are just opposed philosophically to the death penalty at all. We shouldn't be putting people to death and that's a fine thing to believe and it makes your approach to these issues really easy. I feel like the thing that I struggle with the most is the application piece of it and that even if we had some sort of assurance that everyone sentenced to death was 100% guilty, not everybody who's guilty gets sentenced to death and people are more likely to be sentenced in certain places or if you're a certain race or if you kill somebody of a certain race. You know, um, Kamala Harris, who's the attorney general now, was the DA in San Francisco and she said, I'm opposed to the death penalty and people aren't going to be sentenced to death in San Francisco on my watch. Um, but we still had the death penalty, so it was, people were still being sentenced outside of San Francisco. And so, you know, it depends on where you live and where you're sentenced to a crime. And, and I think that's one thing that people um, really struggle with. Yeah, it's, it's, I, I was just looking through the list of, of the, the condemned inmate list. And uh, our current DA, Bonnie DeManis, says sent very few people to death row. I think the last one was 2011. Um, but then we look at a case like like John Gardner, who, you know, raped and murdered two young women. And it's like if they're and admitted to it, and if there was ever a death penalty case, it's 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 this guy. And uh, the, what the, what we were told initially is that he was offered kind of a plea deal. Uh, you won't get capital punishment if you tell us where um, there was still uh, one of the young ladies. Um, they couldn't find her body. Tell us where, where her body is and you'll just get life in prison without parole. Um, John Gardner said later, like, I would have told them anyhow, you know, I, it, this wasn't a plea deal. I, I, I didn't care if I was, if I was executed or if I was sent to death row. So, um, you know, there's that deterrent effect that clearly is not, you know, that's really interesting, you know, cause, you? cause with Mike and Penny, they said, you know, this, le this piece of leverage is, is really strong. And it did seem like it was leverage in this Chelsea King, Amber Dubois case initially, but you're also relying on a killer to take right. them at their word. That's, so who knows? Yeah. A lot of, there's been a, a lot of studies done on, on whether this has a deterrent effect and, and 
they've all found no. I mean, of course, these are research studies kind of <laughs> conducted in, you know, research world and, and, and maybe practical application. I don't know. We could definitely find instances where, where yeah, this person doesn't want to end up on death row and gives up information. Absolutely. So Prop 62 is pretty easy to understand. It would end the death penalty and it would resentence people to life uh, in prison without parole. Let's talk about Prop 66 and this process that it seeks to speed up and, and how it sort of attempts to do that. Can you talk a little bit about about what it would do? Yeah. So so if you're if you're um, found guilty, sentenced to death, uh, you automatically get an appeal to uh, a state court, um, a direct appeal, and that goes to the state Supreme Court. That can take uh, months, years to file. Uh, and in that appeal, you're looking for things that went wrong in that, that trial. The judge gave the wrong jury instructions. Um, and I've seen uh, the, the, uh, initial like opening briefs that these these attorneys will file on behalf of their their condemned clients and they're like 600 pages long. Right. So this is, you know, very serious stuff. So and they have to wait to get appointed an attorney to handle that appeal because there is a very small pool of attorneys who are qualified and, and willing to take these cases. So um, there's that appeal. If that fails, you get um, another thing called a habeas appeal where you can challenge things that that didn't happen in court. Uh, like evidence that wasn't introduced. Um, so that's kind of the state level, and that can take about 10, 10, 12 years. And that's what Prop 66 is seeking to address. They're seeking to add more attorneys who can handle these appeals cases and put time limits on on when these appeals um, need to be filed by. But um, I know, Sarah, we've talked about this. There's the whole other federal appeals System Right. So my husband, full disclosure, is an attorney uh, at the state's attorney general's office, and he works on these federal habeas appeals. And so when you've exhausted all your options in state court, you get one shot at convincing a federal court, you know, please step in. Um, the state courts got it wrong. And so to my knowledge, Prop 66 doesn't address the federal yeah. side of it all. Yeah. They don't have, you know, jurisdiction to tell the feds how long they can they can do their job. So that's one thing to keep in mind is that even if it speeds things up on the state side, I don't think that there's any mechanism to speed things up uh, with these federal appeals. So it could still end up taking quite a long time, yeah, more than five years. We're still going to have uh, folks on death row for, you know, a dozen years, 15 years. Um. So let's talk about this uh, lawyer pool um, and how it would expand that and kind of what the arguments for and against that are I've seen lawyers arguing that there just there don't even exist enough lawyers um, that would be able to handle um, what Prop 66 is proposing. Um, I know the ACLU and some other groups just think private attorneys a lot of times aren't willing to take on these cases because they're so time consuming. It's relatively little pay from what I understand for the amount of work it is. Um, but this would have sort of a provision where you couldn't be appointed to other cases unless you took these cases too. Mm -hmm. Is that right? Yeah. So this pool of there, there's you know the pool of attorneys who are qualified to handle capital cases, and then there's a pool of attorneys that are qualified to handle um, 
I can't remember the actual term. Let's just say very just serious like the, cases. The, lo- the lesser yeah, tier. Like right. someone who, yeah. The step below yeah. death cases. So Prop 66 would say, well, you you folks too, you, you're going to have to, if you want to remain on our appointee list, and, and some attorneys, that's their livelihood. Um, and they don't want to handle these really complex capital cases. They're willing to handle the less serious cases, and that's what they do for a living. So, so Prop 66 would say, oh, you guys are, you have to be available for capital cases too, or else we'll, we'll cut you off this list. So you're basically forcing people to take cases that they don't want to take. Um, you know, when, when um, uh, Professor uh, John Cotzerios, uh, who was on my uh, PolitiFest panel on, on death penalty majors, majors he said, um, this is very, he called it very mean-spirited and potentially unconstitutional because you've got the legislative branch telling the judicial branch you know, how, how it's going to do things when, you know, right now it's the, it's the uh, state Supreme Court that determines uh, eligibility of uh, cap- lawyers to take capital cases and, and other cases. Yeah, I mean, maybe it's absurd to kind of make comparisons when you're dealing with something like death. But, you know, I'm a journalist, but if somebody else all of a sudden told me you have to write about, you know, spas and hot tubs I'd say I don't know anything about spas and hot tubs and it's not gonna go well if you force me to write about spas and hot tubs um but so in some in some other states the uh, the public defenders people are getting drugged into the public defense system who are um not at all qualified to do really criminal law but this these people would still be criminal defense attorneys they just aren't as interested in doing capital cases but right. they they're not these aren't like bankruptcy attorneys who are being drug in off the no, street to do capital still cases. No, highly qualified yeah. attorneys. It's just, you know, as Sarah pointed out, these 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 can drag on for a really long time. And some folks, it's just, just or for ethical reasons, you know, it's just not what they want to do. Well, thank you, Kelly. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks for the invite. So this was kind of a dark discussion I wouldn't even venture to say it was definitely a very dark discussion. Um, But these are important issues that you guys are going to be deciding or perhaps have already decided um, and are still thinking about. It's kind of awkward now to transition to our favorite things, but I also think that we've earned it and we should think about, you know, joyful things after grappling with some of these issues. Um, My favorite thing is, so today... This is, you know, a few days before this this will post, but Twitter announced that Vine is shutting down. Vine is this service that posts these little short videos. So in tribute, people are posting their favorite Vines, and it's just like a flood of really hilarious, mostly animal-related Vines. And so my favorite one is of a, like, seal playing a saxophone. Um, There's also a really good one of a Boston Terrier riding a Roomba. Um, And I really needed those this week, Um, and I'm just going to watch them on repeat, and I will put some links in to the podcast posts so that people can enjoy them after they grapple with serious voting decisions. What about you? My favorite thing is a Saturday Night Live skit. Uh, Recently, Tom Hanks hosted the show, and they had a a skit on Black Jeopardy. Um, And uh, the host was black. Two of the Jeopardy guests were black. Um, but Tom Hanks obviously is not, and he played Doug, and he was a guy wearing an American flag, an Eagle t-shirt, and wearing a Make America Great hat. And uh, at first you thought, well, you know, this is going to be 
something about you know racial differences and play on some stereotypes. But actually, what ended up happening is Tom Hanks's character um, started getting questions right. Um, they said, you know, uh, one of the categories uh, involved uh, an auto mechanic charging two hundred fifty bucks, and Tom Hanks was like, no, 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 I go down the road and get this, my guy, my dude down the block. He does it for forty bucks, and the other you know black guests were like, yeah, yeah, we got a guy too, uh, and. Uh, Tom Hanks was like, well, you know, my guy's name is Jimmy, not Cecil, but yeah, yeah, he, he'll fix anything. You know, he'll fix refrigerators, cars, whatever. Um, and it was so good. <clears throat> yeah, and the and the skit ended sort of on a sour note where the category was uh, lives that matter. Lives that matter, and Doug's <laughs> like, okay, well, I have a really long explanation for this, but um, but what it was pointing out, oh, Doug, uh, <laughs> what it was pointing out is that um, there are parts of this country um, that are are very poor and very downtrodden. Um, that are are white, um, and obviously there's a, a pretty significant difference um, in the histories of, of of white people and black people in this country. Um, but you know, people like the Scots Irish and Appalachia um, have a, a history of really being exploited um, themselves. And there's this mutual grievance, um, I think, that binds us together as a country. Um, it's just that um, white now white men are taking that in a different direction. Um, than than black men and black women, and it's it's really interesting because we share a lot, um, but we just have, uh, for one reason or another, decided to take out our anger and hope in a different way in this election. It's hilarious. We'll link to that too. You should watch it. That's a great favorite thing. And I think this is our last episode before the big day, the big show. So please study, go vote, go out there and do it, you guys. We believe in you. 